Sport, race and politics have often collided throughout history. Sports is a great tool and a great teacher and can be a very, very powerful instrument. But for many black athletes, even the greats, when they talked about race, the world wasn't always ready to listen. It was like things that he had been bottling up for decades suddenly came kind of bursting through a dam. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, sport and the race for change. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Sport has the power to change the world. It has the power to inspire. It has the power to unite people in a way that little us does. Back in 2000, in an iconic speech, Nelson Mandela told a venue packed with some of the greatest sportsmen and women in the world about what sport could achieve. Sport can create hope where once there was only despair. It is more powerful than governments in breaking down racial barriers. Standing behind him on stage was the legendary Olympic hurdler Edwin Moses, winner of 122 consecutive races, a giant in his field, and the chairman of the Laureus World Sports Academy. I was drafted to be the chairman, I think, that afternoon. On a Sunday afternoon, he gave this wonderful speech. The thing that I remember most is the look on the face of the audience. I got the stadium viewed, and I traditionally would get by being on the track. I'm looking up into the stands, and that night I was looking out into the audience, standing behind him, and looking at the impact of those words that he had to say. Peace is the greatest weapon mankind has to resolve even the most intractable difficulties. That speech was made at the first Laureus World Sports Awards. The charity that Edwin chairs runs projects in 40 countries using sport 
to help children overcome hardship, racism and discrimination. I took Edwin back to that moment because, 20 years on, the world of sport is still fighting the same battles. I approached my running more or less as an art form versus a distinct sport, a discrete sport. I looked at it from uh, putting together a lot of different elements, uh, different types of running, different kinds of exercise. I had about 14 elements, but uh, most of all, they only came into play during races, which was only 12, 15, 20 times a year. So it was just a, a way of life for me that I was able to enjoy working on on a day-to-day basis. And that's one of the reasons I was able to win for all those years. I was about 20 years of age when Edwin Moses was coming to his peak years. David Walsh is chief sports writer at the Sunday Times. He's known Edwin Moses for years, and they've been talking recently too. In his peak years, he was the most extraordinary 400-metre hurdler. He, he was incredibly graceful. And I don't think anybody watched Edwin Moses and didn't fall in love with the way he ran. He was just so graceful and so brilliant. He was technically a brilliant, brilliant 400-metre hurdler, which is a very technical event. He had tremendous tactical intelligence And it just meant he was completely dominant. He went nine years and nine months without losing a race. Tiger Woods said, in his opinion, it's perhaps the greatest winning streak in all of sport. So that's how significant Edwin Moses was. David and Edwin have become friends over the years. But it wasn't until the killing of George Floyd and the protests that followed that David broached the subject of race. In our ignorance, middle-class white people like me, what has been happening in the US and indeed in our own society in relation to black people is wrong. But in our perception of what's wrong, we see black people from blue-collar backgrounds being pulled in, being searched, being suspected, and ignorantly, we don't imagine that this is actually happening to black people from every walk of life, from every socioeconomic group. And that was the thing that my conversation with Edwin Moses brought home to me. If you are a racist policeman, a racist cop in America, you're not distinguishing between Edwin Moses and any other black person. You're treating them all in that racist way. And, and that was my takeaway from the conversation with Edwin Moses. I have to say, I was shocked. I just didn't think that it would happen to Edwin Moses. Not because he was Edwin Moses, but because he's a very well-educated. I mean, I've never seen him dressed in anything other than his suit and tie. He's the kind of guy that you'd imagine the cops would never stop. But that's pure ignorance on my behalf. And that was what I took away from the conversation. The worst incident of racism that he had was when he was stopped in Los Angeles. He was stopped in the very city where he won his second Olympic gold medal, where if you went back to that night in 1984, when Edwin Moses won the Olympic gold medal and the American national anthem was being played all around the country, the flag, stars and stripes is going up on that pole and they're all 
singing the national anthem and everybody's happy. He's the absolute hero. He comes out of that arena and he goes back to being a black guy, subject to the same racism that many people from his race are being subjected to. That's hard for us white people because you just, you know, you kind of don't imagine it's ever going to be like that. And Edwin Moses will say, but forget about the fact that I'm a a double gold medalist. That's irrelevant. I deserve to be treated like a normal human being, regardless of what I've done on an athletics track. He said, I would never say that, but I would expect to be treated like any normal person. It was just a straight police harassment issue where guns were pulled for I never figured out what. And I was very, very upset and things could have gone the wrong way very quickly. I spoke to Edwin about the incident that took place just two years ago. I'm driving, pulled over for no reason, made a safe U-turn to keep from swerving across the street to go where I was going to go and was still stopped, given drug and alcohol, field tests, sobriety tests, three times. He talked really interestingly about what he would see as his protocols. In other words, driving license must always be on the passenger seat, visible. So therefore, when you're asked to show your license, you don't have to reach into your inside pocket, or you don't have to reach into the glove department, because that puts you, the black person, in danger. So imagine you or I getting into our car. We don't ever think of putting our driving license on the passenger seat so that it's visible. So if you're stopped, it's there for the cops to see. It's not a precaution that any of us take, but it's a precaution that Edwin Moses takes every time he gets into his car. And he talked about holding both arms high up on the steering wheel. So they're totally visible to the cops at all times. And then he, he told the story about the cop saying to him, I need to see the registration of the car. And Edwin Moses says, well, it's a rental car. It will be in the glove department. And the cop says, OK, you can take it out. And Edwin Moses says, you're saying I can reach to the glove department, take out my, the registration. Yes, you can. Went to get my registration out of the glove box. And unbeknownst to me, second policeman came up. And as soon as I reached for the glove box, which I asked that first officer permission for, then the guy pulls a gun on me. The other cop pulls his gun and aims it at him. But the other cop hasn't heard the conversation going on. And Edwin Moses stops, turns to the original cop and says, you told me I could I could do this. Things could have gone very, very badly instantaneously in that kind of condition. And there's no apology from the cops, there's no, oh, hold on, hold on. The second cop comes round and he starts asking the same question that the first cop had been asked, i.e., are you high? And they start looking at his eyes and putting the, doing that finger test to see how the eyes react to a finger, that finger test. The intensity of that few seconds was total shock to, to my brain. It took me mentally a couple of weeks to recover from that, you know, just to process it. Over the years... David has often called Edwin to talk about sports, but he found a very different Edwin Moses when he called to discuss the death of George Floyd. The context is interesting because I'd spoken to him previously and interviewed him, and I found him quite reserved, strong and principled, but avoided controversy. And when I called him up because I wanted to discuss 
the fallout to George Floyd's death with somebody who lived in the US, somebody who had been involved in sport and somebody who was black. And when I spoke to him, I discovered a different Edwin Moses. I discovered a very angry Edwin Moses. It was like things that he had been bottling up for decades suddenly came kind of bursting through a dam. He said stuff that he truly believed and has believed for a long time, i.e. that black people in the US have been treated appallingly by the police. I heard in that conversation, I heard Edwin Moses use swear words. I have never, in multiple conversations with Edwin Moses, I have never heard him come within a million miles of a swear word. David thought the interview had been an eye-opener, but his son Connor didn't approve. Connor is a member of our family that everybody says he could start an argument in an empty room. But he has been the conscience of our family because he's more politically aware than all of us. He's one of the most principled people I know, and he pulls me up on stuff. And his argument was, Dad, you want to write about racism and you want to say how racism is such a bad thing. So you're a white, middle-aged, middle-class sports writer. Privileged position. So you ring up one of your few black friends or acquaintances And you get an insight from him and you allow him his insight to form the basis of your column. And then you get paid for that. And that's your contribution to racism. And I'm saying, well, Connor, like no matter who I ring up, you know, on other subjects, you can make that point. And he said, but when it comes to racism, you have a responsibility to educate yourself and to express your views on this from your wide reading on the subject. He made a lot of sense. But I still wanted to hear what Edwin Moses had to say. And I'm kind of glad. And and in deference to our son, the first thing I said to Edwin Moses, I said, do you mind my calling you up to get your insight on the fallout to George Floyd's death? And Edwin Moses said, no, actually, David, I'm glad you've called me because this is something we really do need to speak about. Are you pleased that David called you to have the conversation? Well, you know, I've been working on this issue in my own way for years. Uh, Whether I'm happy or not has nothing to do with it. It's it's the rest of the people out there. I went to a, a school that is steeped in civil rights and equity and morality and ethics. So I've been talking about this for 40 years at least and trying to having discussions with people. And it's a difficult one. So I'm glad that everyone else is talking about it. It's not about me. (laughs) It's not about me. I I, I would have been pleased to talk about it and have spoken about it in public forums for years going back. But now it's time for other people. It's, It's not time to talk. It's time to act. And it really doesn't have that much to do with me. This is nothing new for me whatsoever and nothing new for a lot of people. And I think that ultimately will be one of the first barriers that people are are able to overcome, that this has been going on. It didn't just pop up. It didn't just pop up. And uh, reminds me of a poster I saw on someone's Instagram account, a small girl. She must have been about 12, 13 years old. And she said that George was not a wake-up call. This is not a wake-up call. This has been going on since 1619. And everybody's had their, their alarm on snooze. And she's exactly right. 
it's not just in America. You, you've got this all over the world in Paris and in South Africa and Germany and France and Sweden, Japan, all over the world, Australia, all over the world where at different levels has been going on. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing. David's son thought that he, as a, a white journalist, shouldn't be profiting from your words and wisdom. What, what did you make of that? Uh, I don't know. That's <laughs> That has nothing to do with me. That's his son's opinion. I am glad. I am glad I had the conversation. And Connor, who's our son, he sent me a, a text and said, Dad, I read your piece, and I thought it made a lot of good points. And although I was against you talking to Edwin, I understand why you did. And it was really interesting to hear his story. So, you know, I didn't, I ended up not falling out with my son, which was good. There's another high profile African American sports star who, like Edwin Moses, became famous in the 1980s the basketball player, Michael Jordan. Many people will have seen the hit ESPN series about his success at Chicago Bulls. But David felt it didn't really tell the whole story. One of the things that struck me about this, because when you watch something as good as The Last Dance, you go reading, and I wanted to find out. I knew that Michael Jordan was from Wilmington in North Carolina. And I read a piece written by a very good writer, American writer, um, Wright Thompson. He did a terrific piece about Michael Jordan's background uh, and his, you know, where his people came from. And they came from Wilmington in North Carolina. Five generations of Jordans were from this town, which at one time was the, the biggest city in North Carolina. Well, if you go back to the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, majority of people, I think it might have been 60%, 65% of the population of Wilmington was black. And they owned some of the best businesses in town and they were represented on the local council. And society in Wilmington was pretty well integrated. And on a night in 1898, you had the massacre of Wilmington, where some important white people in town hired what the historians have called muscle, which were mostly Irish people, who came with guns and shot dead 60 black people, the most assertive members of the local black community. A lot of other black people moved out of Wilmington in the aftermath of that. And the dynamic and the demographic of the city changed completely. It suddenly had a white majority. And this is where Michael Jordan's people have come from. And he's been one of the world's greatest sportsmen. And the city that he's come from is infamous for an appalling massacre. And Michael Jordan, because of the way society is framed, doesn't feel entitled to mention the massacre of Wilmington at any point in his career. So I asked Edwin Moses why he thought Michael Jordan would never have mentioned the massacre of Wilmington in 1898. And he said it's because black people feel that white people will get defensive and it won't work well for the black person to speak about stuff like that. So therefore, don't go there. You'll only make your life more difficult if you mention something as awful as that, which obviously reflects pretty badly on how some white people behaved in, in relation to the massacre of Wilmington. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Four years ago, we witnessed another flashpoint in the long history of race and sport. Colin Kaepernick, an NFL quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, staged a protest against police brutality towards African-Americans. How? He would kneel on one knee during the playing of the national anthem before the game started. He was joined by many other players in the NFL and he was protesting against injustice against black people. And it seemed like a very legitimate protest because there had been lots of killings and a general sense that black people weren't being fairly treated. And here was somebody standing up for an under siege minority. And there was lots of support from within the game, but there was also lots of criticism and lots of pressure on the owners to discourage players from doing this. I thought it was the right thing to do. It was a peaceful way to do it. Dr. Martin Luther King said in uh, one of his speeches, the the arc of justice always bends toward righteousness. It was kind of a challenge to all of us to say, well, where do you stand on this? Because the other side of the argument is that this is disrespectful to the U.S. national anthem. And my feeling was that it was peaceful protest. The, The motivation for the protest seemed utterly justified. And the owner's reaction, you would have to say, was utterly predictable in the sense that they felt this protest was bad for business. So the owners did what you'd expect them to do in a way. They were against it because they deemed that it would damage the bottom line. So he was kind of, in a sense, hung out to dry. Now, the irony is that a lot of people believed he had done something very brave, and I would certainly put myself in that camp. And The sportswear company, Nike, decided to make him a a very big part of an advertising campaign. Colin Kaepernick ended up a well-reimbursed Nike athlete and good luck to him. But his career was taken away from him and it still is because there is still no team. 
he still doesn't have a job in the NFL, and hopefully that'll be rectified. But uh, he did the right thing for the right reasons, and there's a lot of people who were on the wrong side of history that are now having to apologize and admit that they were wrong. Is he going to get a team even now? You know, even at a time now when it might be, it would certainly be deemed considered much easier on a political level to sign him now. Is that going to happen? Because you can be sure that a lot of the owners are going to be thinking, yes, this is where the public sympathies now lie. But in six months time, in 12 months time, will we go back to where we were before George Floyd's death? And I think this is a really interesting part of the story. Where are we going to be in a year's time? A lot of people would like to believe that George Floyd is a defining moment, but I think we've got to wait and see. Was it significant, though, that for the first time since the Colin Kaepernick moment, the NFL, following the George Floyd protests, has come out in support of him? Yes. (laughs) I thought it was a significant expression of their commercial awareness. You know, they realise now that their position is a very unpopular one. They come out in support of him. But why hadn't they come out in support of him previously? It looked like they were reacting only to the pressure of the moment. And it was hard to give them any credit for what they did. And a lot of people called them out for their hypocrisy. You were against Colin Kaepernick and really nothing has changed. So how can we give them credit for doing something that they should have done years ago? So it's taken four years for the commission of the National Football League to admit that they were on the wrong side of history. I would imagine it's been a horrible four years for Kaepernick. He still doesn't have a job. And now that we have this unrest and just this whole new Black Lives Matter movement and what's happened in this country, a lot of people have had to revisit and rethink and actually are, are feeling refreshed that the way in which he wanted to express himself was very, very valid, valid and legitimate and, and for the right reasons. So it's really a tragedy that he had to suffer so much, which is always the case when there's some really some social justice issues on the line. You, you talked about, with Edwin Moses, about there being a sense that this was the moment where the dam burst, where everything he'd bottled up for years was suddenly finding voice. I mean, do you think that that does feel like this could be a moment? It won't just fizzle out. This has unleashed something you hadn't, you know, nobody quite expected. Yes, I do believe that. I really do. I think if if you don't believe in that, you don't believe in life. If that image of George Floyd's life ending under the knee Well, if that doesn't change something, nothing ever will. But I believe it will. I I really do believe that basically black people are not going to accept this anymore. They're not going to remain quiet. The Edwin Moses of this world are not going to be stopped by the police and be harassed and treated like a criminal without any reason. And I don't see how white people are ever going to get away with the reaction, for example, that the NFL team owners had to Colin Kaepernick. I don't see that as being something that will be allowable or permissible going forward. And I think a lot of white people have been feeling guilty at the expression that silence is violence, silence is complicity. It's no longer good enough to say nothing. 
It shouldn't take having to be black to understand what was going on. My thesis is that everyone should have seen it for what it was. And people made choices then and they're making choices now. You have to believe what you're saying or not. And uh, people all over the world are now in a situation where they have to process what they've heard and seen for their entire lives in some cases and make sense of it. When you juxtapose it to what you're actually seeing happen on the streets and how people are behaving. So we all have to come to our senses and come to reality at some point in time. And you don't have to be black to understand it. You don't have to be anything to understand it. All you have to do is believe what your eyes tell you uh, and uh, do your research and, and, and uh, have a heart and look at things for where they are, for where they stand and determine what part of history and what side of the issue you're going to stand on. It's not really that complicated. listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, David Walsh from the Sunday Times and Edwin Moses from the Laureus World Sports Academy. You can read more of David's work on sports and the doping scandals he's helped to uncover at thetimes.co.uk or catch him in print on Sundays. The producers were Will Rowe and Poppy Damon. The executive producer is Leo Hornack and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. Next week, you get a break from me, and Times Radio will be staging a takeover of Stories of Our Times. On Monday, we'll kick off with the great John Pienaar. In the meantime, see you tomorrow. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.